Now this morning, as we come to our sermon time, we've been going through a number of issues uh, in our pop culture. And uh, Pastor Step is away this week, so I got something really easy to deal with, which is women's rights. Uh, let, let me just say that at the time we were planning this, it seemed like a really good idea. And one of my greatest fears here is that I would open my mouth and insert my foot. And then in, a, in an attempt to recover from that, I would stick my other foot in as well. And completely offend everyone possible. But when we're talking about women's rights, as some of the movements emphasize, that women's rights are human rights. And so as we're talking about this, we're talking about how God creates us all equal. And when we talk about uh, rights, we're basically talking about the equality of rights and opportunities between men and women. That there is no order where, whether you're a man or a woman, you deserve more rights and opportunities or less rights or opportunities. And as you know, our society has been wrestling with this for decades, maybe longer. In fact, the, the wrestling with this is just as real now as it was a hundred years ago. We are still wrestling with this and trying to get a grasp of what this means and how can we live this out. But here's the sad truth. As far back as we can look, and in almost every culture, we see a gender gap where men and women have different opportunities, different value, and different status. Almost everywhere we look in history, it shows this difference. Men were the warriors, the politicians, the property owners, and they were given the rights of education. They were given that respect. And if you were a man, and if you were a wealthy man, you might have multiple wives just to show how rich you are. Even in early Bible times, the message of God came to people who lived this way and had that perspective. Even some of the great heroes of faith were like this. Women, on the other hand, kept the home, the family, they did the cooking, they did the cleaning, they did all those, those basic necessities of life. Unfortunately, they were looked also on as property, owned or at least guided by a male or guided by their husbands. They were often victims of physical and sexual abuse. And in fact, during war times, uh, that kind of abuse was all often used in war as a war tactic. Women were more likely to be traded as slaves, though men were also. Now, some of you have shared with me your own backgrounds 
within your own cultures, how some of you grew up where your fathers or your grandfathers had multiple wives. Some of you come from cultures that even compared to Canada, the challenge of women's rights is much higher than even that we are experiencing here. And you've shared with me the impact that that's had on you as you've looked at your own worth, at your own gender. What does that mean to have a Christian marriage, to raise your sons and your daughters with Christian perspectives? Even here in Canada, we wrestle. In fact, what's amazing is that a woman's right to vote and to own property and have equal access to education is barely even a hundred years old, which seems so short in history, doesn't it? And we are still trying to root out those long-held perspectives that maybe that somehow women are not worth quite as much as men. And it shows up even in our choices of aborting babies and our choices and how we value what we want. Do we want a boy or a girl as a baby? And we wrestle with this. You know, my own coming to faith as a teenager I came to faith within a small, very conservative church. Women were not allowed to speak publicly, especially if men were there, and women were definitely not allowed on the platform. They had to have their heads covered with a hat or a veil. Uh, they had to be silent and in church, and if they had any questions about what was going on, to wait till you get home and ask your husband, because he knows everything. It was even better if women had long hair, and I can remember early having these discussions, even in youth group, about are women allowed to wear men's clothes? And that seems so archaic at this moment in my life. And I'm thinking, what on earth was that all about? Now, even though those were the types of things we were discussing, and that was not 100 years ago, it's amazing that God's grace was still at work in our lives. And that's where I came to see the love of Jesus. But I was oblivious to the impact of those perspectives on the girls in our youth group and how it shaped them. And many men and women have tremendous amounts of guilt and shame that somehow we don't fit into God's divine plan for roles of men and women. Lots of men say, I don't feel like I'm that kind of a man. And lots of women say, I don't feel like I'm that kind of a woman. And it's easy to get the impression that somehow the Bible reinforces old stereotypes that men are worth much more than women are. And it gets lived out in the rights and the protections and the opportunities 
we allow people. So what do the scriptures say about these kinds of rights? Let's take a few moments. We'll take a look in the scriptures at some of where we stand and where we are developing our own perspective of human rights and women's rights. Now back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, we see where God created mankind. And it says here that God created mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created the male and female. And the idea here, it's not that God created Adam in his image and then Eve was attacked along. It was only when God had finished creating both male and female that they reflected the image of God. And in that sense, being male and female, together as a human race, we reflect God's image. It wasn't that Adam reflected it more than Eve, but it was together that they reflected God's image. Now, after God created Adam, he said it's not good. And these are the kinds of verses that we read at weddings, right? It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. This comes from the old King James, and some of you recognize that, a help meet. And we think sometimes it's, it, it's like we are saying, or like God is thinking, you know what's wrong with this picture? I've got Adam, but what he really needs is a maid. And so he creates Eve. And sometimes we read it that way. In fact, sometimes we read the old King James verse and we read it so quickly that we jam that last line all together so that it says, I will make him a helpmeet for him. But in actuality, there is a pause between those words. I will make him a help meet for him. And the concept here, in some of your versions of the Bible bring this out a lot clearer, that I will give him a help which is not an assistant but this is the kind of help that the Bible uses for the help of God. It's the divine help. It's when God reaches into my life. It's what David spoke about when he says, I lift my eyes to the hills and where does my help come from? My help comes from God. And this is the kind of help that God is saying, I'm going to give Adam. And he brought along Eve which was that divine help. And when he uses the word meet for him, he's talking about someone who is equal, who meets him eye to eye, stature to stature, someone who is of equal power, equal influence, as iron sharpens iron. A person who is there, a companion who is equal. It's interesting how when God created Adam and Eve, he did not create them the same way he created the animals. Where God created a pair of animals, a male and female. But he created only Adam and then he led Adam on the exploration of discovering, wait a minute, there's something missing. I see you boar and a sow. 
I see a bull and a cow. Just a minute. I'm obviously a stud. Where's the... There's something missing. And God went about creating the woman out of the man. And as he describes there is that this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is me. It's part of me. To be treated the same way I would treat myself. With the same value. The same opportunities. The same kind of respect. She's not brought along as an assistant. And as an assistant, we sometimes kind of think of it like when my kids were trying to help daddy fix something. They said, daddy, can I help you? And I'm working on tools and stuff. I go, "Uh, here, hold the flashlight. You can help me. That's not the perspective between Adam and Eve. That she was coming along to be his assistant because, well, she needed something to do. But the concept that she is a help meet for him is that it's a picture of equality and of working together. I love the picture that's brought out in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 4 where it says this, and we sometimes use this one also in, in weddings. It says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity any, anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. And then it continues on. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The concept here is that with Adam and Eve, between husband and wife, between men and women, by working together. They can defend themselves. They can work on equal levels. That man and woman, in God's eyes, reflect his glory, reflect his image. Now we come to a a Bible verse which has often been so difficult to translate and so difficult to interpret from Genesis chapter 3 because during the time of the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against God and it's interesting how the sin throughout all of the scriptures is attributed to Adam for some reason. But in talking to Eve God says this, your desire to control your husband will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And in trying to interpret this and to understand what that means, we've sometimes interpreted in the, in the idea of that there are certain roles or this refers to a certain kind of sexuality or desire or this refers to something physically but it seems like one of the best interpretations will be that now, because of the fall, you're going to want to control him and he's going to want to rule over you. And instead of working well together, there's going to be this battle and this struggle and this tension that you're going to be wondering who is really in control? Who is really most important? It's like 
the disciples during the time of Jesus, how they wrestled and they asked Jesus on many occasions, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which one of us disciples is really more important? And the disciples battled over that over and over again. And it's that kind of a struggle that during the fall that entered the human race. And it was never God's plan to have that kind of a struggle. But it's an evidence of our fallenness. An evidence of sin in our lives. An evidence of the sin shaping our thoughts where we're battling. I like how Galatians puts it. Because when we're talking about how God is at work, he says, now that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, but all of you are one in Christ. He's not saying that they aren't there. There is male and female. But he says, that's not the focus. And that's not where we get our value from. And that's not the distinctions we make. Because in Christ, we are all on an equal level. God values us and uses us in equal ways. And it's interesting when we take a look at scriptures, when we see strong women throughout all of the scriptures, women doing things that men wouldn't even want to do or dare to do or have the courage to do. And I want to encourage you along the way here to take a look and read the scriptures looking for strong women. And there's some in there that everyone recognizes, but there are some there that are easy to overlook. How about Zipporah? Do you know who Zipporah is? Zipporah is Moses' wife. Everyone knows about Moses, but not everyone knows about his wife. See, God had called Moses to be the deliverer for Israel. But Moses had ignored some of the instructions that God had given his ancestors about circumcising his sons. And so in a story which is very similar overtones to the story of Jacob, where God meets Jacob uh, out on the riverfront and has a wrestling match with him, this case... God meets with Moses and was going to kill him. And his wife, Zipporah, stands up for Moses. She does the deed, and then she has some choice words for Moses along the way also. But she was the one who intervened and saved Moses' life. The five daughters of Zelophehad. Do you know who they are? <laughs> See, God had given instructions that every male in the family would receive a plot of property. And from that, uh, the property would stay within certain families. But Zelophehad didn't have any sons. He had only five daughters. And the girls recognized, there's a problem here. We're not being treated fairly. So the five of them went to Moses and all the leaders of Israel and said, there's a problem here. We need to fix this. They stood up to what they saw as an injustice. And God honored that. And Moses changed his mind. And they had property. 
Some of you know about Deborah, the prophetess, and the judge. And we call them judges, but really what they were were warrior leaders. A person became a judge not because someone chose them or gave them a job. They rose to the surface because they were people who took initiative. They saw something that was wrong, and they stood up, and they became recognized as judges. And Deborah was one of those women who stood up in a time of need, and everyone looked to her for guidance. And she called a man named Barak to come and fight a battle when he was a little bit uh, not so sure that this was his job. She encouraged him. She went along with him. She backed him. But she also said, because of the way you're doing this, the glory is not going to be to you. It's going to be to another woman. I always remember her name, Jail with the Nail. And she was the one who delivered Israel on that day. How about Abigail? Do you know about Abigail? You see, David was on the run from Saul. And he had collected men around him. He had about 600 men. And they would run from cave to cave, uh, fleeing from Saul just for their lives. At this one time, they were camped around uh, this one man, Nabal, and he had all these sheep. He was a very wealthy man. But they were camping there. They protected his servants. They protected his flocks and his herds. And so when a time came of celebration, when it was time when the harvest was being taken and the animals were being slaughtered for meat, David sent a delegation to Nabal and said, if there's anything you can spare, please help us. And Nabal, who's a very ornery and rude and self-centered man, replied very roughly back to the servants. He was so hot-tempered that he would have nothing to do with David. I'm not sharing my stuff with him. It's mine. David was so angry at this kind of rude response. He's, he goes, what's the point of me doing good to this man? I'm going to go down and show him. He gets a bunch of his men. He's heading down the mountain. He's going to wipe them out. And Abigail, the wife of rude old Nabal, she realizes what her husband has been doing. And she intervenes. And she uh, gets all of her servants as a quick load up the donkeys and they collect as much food as possible. And she goes and she meets David halfway. He's coming down with swords and in a bad mood. And she comes up and she bows before him and she explains the situation. I never heard what was going on. And, and I, you know, and I realized my husband is not really all that good of a man. And she protects her husband, but she also protects David. And she says, someday you're going to be king, but I want to protect your conscience from having murder on your hands. And David blesses her for her initiative, for her courage, for standing in the gap when there is a need. Because she was the one who protected both David and her husband. And there's so many more who are strong. Even in the New Testament, you've heard of Aquila and Priscilla. 
Well, the situation is there, very similar to Barnabas and Saul. You remember the, the story of Barnabas and Paul? They went around and it started off, people referred to them as Barnabas and Paul, the two of them, because Barnabas was sort of the leader. But as time went on, it started switching to Paul and Barnabas. Because in the end, Paul really shone and stood out. Well, the same is true with Aquila and Priscilla. Because after they're introduced to us in the book of Acts, the names switch around. And it's Priscilla and her husband Aquila who's helping. Where she was the strong one. She was the one who took the initiative. And he was working with her. These two traveled with Paul for a while. And then they stayed in Ephesus to get a church started, a ministry started there. They're the ones who trained and taught Apollos who became dominant in the Corinthian church. But you see Priscilla being one who saw God stirring in her life and she took initiative. And throughout the New Testament you hear about the prominent women. And the women who led house churches. And when it talks about, when, when Paul addresses the women who have churches in their house, they're not talking about women who served tea and cookies and hosted a church in their house. They're talking about women who led churches in their home. Who established churches. Who served. Who ministered. Women like Mother Teresa. That regardless of her theology, whether you fully agree with her or not, her desire was to serve Jesus and keep asking Jesus, what is it you want me to do? And even though many men and many structures and authorities did not support her, she still sensed a call from God. Here in Canada, many churches were begun by women right across the prairies we see dozens and dozens of churches that were be that were started by ladies who took that initiative felt a need many women who were called into missions to plant churches and do ministries all across the world women have always had a very strong and a very powerful role within the church of Christ But sometimes we miss some of those parts. And we start feeling like the role of a woman, the role of a woman is, is very quiet, very subservient, very behind the scenes, regardless of their gifts. And the women in our society, it's still a challenge for some of us to grasp that women have a strong voice in our society and can lead us in ways that men don't. So what are the values of God when it comes to men and women? So I'd like to point out a few of those values. The first value, and the idea is that God's values are radical in the sense that we may not find that our values are the same as God's and it shows where we need to adapt and grow. The first is this. Leadership is not about authority, but about servanthood. See, God's call to his people 
is that we should not lord it over those that we are leading. He, Paul emphasizes that to, to his churches. And he's trying to emphasize that leadership is not about telling. Leadership is not about ruling. Leadership is not about running things. But it's about giving of yourself. And it's about serving. There are lots of books out on leadership today. If you go to a favorite bookstore or go on Amazon or any online place and you type in the word leadership, you get hundreds and hundreds of books on leadership because we all want to be leaders. And it's true. Wherever we are, we want to lead those around us. But in God's kingdom, in God's society, it's about servanthood. How can I serve? The second of God's values is this, that God calls all of us to submit to each other. You know that famous passage in Ephesians chapter 5? You know the one we're talking about. Wives, submit to your husband in all things. I love that verse. Actually, I don't because it works on your mind. But it's placed within a context. And the context starts off with this. How we must all submit to each other. And then he goes on to explain what that submission looks like in a marriage relationship. Wife to husband, husband to wife. And it's interesting how he speaks to men. He said, make sure you, and this is a paraphrase, make sure you sacrifice for your spouse the same way Christ sacrificed for you. Whew. So he's not talking about levels of authority, but he's talking about serving and how we can serve each other. Number three, God gives gifts for a reason. And the reason is to, for the sake of serving each other. So when God gifts you with abilities, when God gifts you with uh, things that maybe others do not have, that's not for ourselves. That's so that we can bless other people. So whether it's gifts of helps or gifts of teaching or administration, or gifts of music and worship, gifts of whatever kind. God gives them to you so that you can serve, so that you've got something to give, something to offer. But they're not for our purposes or for our benefit, but they're for the benefit of others. And in God's kingdom, that's how he looks at us, that we are all servants, that we all submit to each other, that we all use our gifts for the benefit of others. And whether you are male and female, God gives us those privileges and those responsibilities to serve in those ways. Number four, human classifications get stripped away. So whether you are Jewish or Gentile, whether you are slave or free, whether you're male and female, that's not the focus. The focus is this. That we are all one in Christ. So whether you're Canadian or whether you're an immigrant. 
Whether you've been here a long time or a short time. Whether you're well educated or not very well educated at all. Whether you have lots of wealth or little wealth. None of that in Christ's eyes classifies us any differently. We are all one in Christ. And that's what makes God's value so radical. And then in verse 5. Excuse me, number five. There is freedom in male and female roles. Now many of us have been raised, well, that's men's work and that's women's work. Or this is a role for men, here's a role for women. I'd like to suggest to you that maybe there's way more freedom in these roles then sometimes we feel or sometimes we think. Our families are so much different than they used to be. It's not, often it's not just a nuclear family. We have blended families. We have additions to our families. We have extended families. In fact, what we think of as our family, sometimes they're not related to me at all, not by blood, but they are part of my family. And how do we live out that family? How do we live out roles between men and women in society, in the workplace, in our communities? I believe that there's probably far more freedom to explore those things than maybe we think. When you're a single dad, when you're a single mom, when you're a grandparent raising a child, when you've got adopted children, families look so differently. And how am I going to assume roles that are God-pleasing? Both in our church and in our societies, we know that there is so much that needs to be done. And how are we going to use each other's gifts to get those things done? It's probably better to look at gifting than it is at gender. Now this is not a discussion about church leadership. About eldership and pastorship. That's a, that's a whole other discussion that we could have. But what this does is it gets at the heart of how we evaluate human rights and women's rights. Are we all equal or are we not? Do all people deserve equal respect? Equal opportunities? Equal protection? Regardless of our backgrounds, and we come from some very different kinds of backgrounds, and we've grown up with very different perspectives on things. But in the midst of our perspectives, we can love each other and respect each other and live a different kind of way from the world that wants to just peg us as a certain kind of a person. Oh, you're this gender, which means you're like that. Or you're this nationality, so it means you're like that. In God's eyes, we're his children. 
When you give your heart to Jesus and he enters your life and when he changes you, we become his children. And in that sense, we have one head who is Jesus. And we are all stand on equal ground before him. And when we struggle with these perspectives, it reminds me, Lord, I still need you to work at me. I still need you to shape me because I realize that I've got some perspectives that are probably not yours. So I invite you to shape me. Now during the month of Lent, we're finishing our sermon time off with prayers of confession and admission. It's a time that prepares us for Easter. It's been a long-held tradition in church, the Christian world. We want to do that this morning. Would you stand with me? Now I have a role to say and you have a role to say. But as we do this, May this be part of our prayers. May this be part of our relationship with Jesus. Good and kind Heavenly Father, you have created all people equal in your sight. All nationalities, colors, groups of people and genders, you have given the same rights and responsibilities. You give all people your deep and rich love. You created us to reflect your image. But over and over again, we have marred your image by treating others in a way which devalues them. Your intent was to create people who would love you and love others. Yet we as a whole race have wandered from you. Our societies have continually shown that we are wayward from you. We have oppressed people who are different from us in order to make our own lives easier. And for this, we are ashamed. You intend for all people to serve their fellow man with humility and compassion. Yet even we, your children, have often used our religious fervor to hate and not to love, to enslave and not bring freedom, to abuse and not respect. Instead of reflecting the image and unity of God, we have instead reflected our own fallenness and darkness. We are truly in need of your forgiveness and cleansing. We deeply desire to make a break from our past and from our own sinfulness so that your grace can grow in us. We desire to live out the love and respect which you call all your children to be. We recognize that unless you help us, we will continually be trapped in a cycle of suspicion, abuse, hatred, and selfishness. And we ask for your help today. We commit ourselves today to allow you to change us. 
We ask you to do your miracle working power in us so that more and more we reflect your values and your love. Empower us to be forgiving to those who attack or seek to enslave us with their own selfish desires and to forgive them just as you forgive us. We invite you to be the light inside of us and to shine that light into our neighborhoods. Use us as an example of how you can change people and change society. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.